Our text this evening is Luke 18, uh, verses 9 to 14, a familiar passage, and I've entitled the sermon, The Puritan and the Publican. The Puritan and the Publican. Now, I know some of you might immediately uh, take offense at this title because I've changed the word Pharisee to Puritan. Uh, So let me just spend a minute or two explaining the rationale for this change. First of all, I did not change it simply because the word Puritan rhymes better than publican compared to Pharisee. No, what we need to understand is that in those days, the term Pharisee was considered a term of great honour and respect, just like how we today might view or think of the term Puritan. Uh, It's true, of course, that not everyone today uh, likes the term Puritan. So I'm I'm thinking particularly of Uh, those circles and churches like ours where there is still a lot of respect for the Puritans and for what they did and what they stood for. Now, what some of us may not realize is that the Pharisees or the whole Pharisaical movement actually started off quite well. Uh, There were no Pharisees in the Old Testament. Uh, Instead, they began as a kind of Puritan movement in Israel during the period between the Old and the New Testament. They originated as a group of men who were very concerned about the inroads of paganism into the nation. Israel was becoming increasingly secular and the people were moving further and further away from the Lord. And so these men wanted to keep the faith pure from contamination. They were called Pharisees because the very word itself means separated ones. They separated themselves from paganism uh, and from secularism of that day. And they gave themselves to the zealous pursuit of righteousness. Their concern for godliness was neither casual nor superficial, but it was sincere and it was wholehearted, at least at first. And so the origin of the word Pharisee was both noble and good. Uh, They were, if you like, the original Puritans of the church. And during the time of Christ, the Pharisees, together with the scribes, were held in very high regard by the common people. Uh, They were, in many ways, the most outstanding members of society. People looked up to them as the benchmark or the standard of spirituality and morality. In fact, the Jews had a saying which went, If only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. Uh, The average man in the street would never dream of coming near to the scribes and Pharisees in terms of their righteousness and holiness. And so as we come to our text this evening, I want us to temporarily lay aside the idea that Pharisee is a bad word, a term of derision or a synonym for hypocrite and so on. Remember that that was not how the first century people saw it or heard it. Rather, think of the word Pharisee as a term of honour and esteem among the people. Think Puritan, if that helps. This passage contains three parts. First, uh, in verse 9, we have the setting of the parable. Then second, in verses 10 to 13, the parable proper. And finally, in verse 14, we have the Lord's concluding remarks on the parable. First, the setting, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. 
quite often in the Gospels, especially in Luke, we uh, note the target audience of our Lord's parable. For example, in chapter 15, prior to the famous trilogy of lost parables, uh, Luke tells us, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners, for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. The Lord then goes on to tell the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But here in our text, Luke tells us of those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. So these people really had two problems, or more accurately, two sins. And these two sins often go together. The first is that they had a misdirected kind of self-confidence and self-reliance. They were convinced that they were righteous. And because of that, they were sure that God would accept them on account of their own merits. And this is a great sin because no one is righteous and no one can find acceptance with God on his own merits. Then the second sin that is closely related is that of despising others. They despised those who could not keep the law the way that they could keep it and thus they viewed them as morally and in religiously inferior. Rather than loving them and helping them, they looked down upon them with contempt and disdain. So self-righteousness and despising others, these are their two big sins and problems. One writer wrote, Pride and contempt for others may be a natural pair, but Jesus condemns both attitudes. Now, who was the Lord referring to or thinking about when he told this parable? Quite clearly, he was thinking about the religious leaders of those days, the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and so on. Of course, not all of them were self-righteous and proud, but sadly, a large number of them were at that time. But remember too that the Lord's warning was not just directed at the religious leaders. It is really directed to all of us as well because these sins can be easily found in us and we need to constantly fight against them. After all, it's very possible to condemn the self-righteous Pharisee with a self-righteous attitude. Dr. Davis writes about the deceptiveness of our self-righteousness and I quote, You could be so self-righteous that you despise the self-righteous and are therefore completely unaware of your own self-righteousness. So you may fall into the pit of self-righteousness, for you may find yourself so much as saying, O oh God, I thank thee that I am not like that arrogant Pharisee, tooting his own horn, itemizing his achievements, loathing other people, and so on. If we despise the Pharisee, then we have fallen into the very same pit as him. And so as we come to this parable proper, let us not be too quick to, to stand apart from or to distance ourselves from the Pharisee as if we ourselves have no problem with the sin of self-righteousness and of pride. But verse 10 sets the scene for the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The story takes place in the temple which is the most sacred location or place in Israel. And since the temple was located on a mount, the two men were said to go up to it. 
Now, these two men represent the two polar extremes or the opposites of religious culture in those days. As I mentioned earlier, the Pharisees were regarded as pious and holy people, whereas the publicans were regarded as being among the greatest sinners in Israel, uh, thus the most hated, the most despised people. It's likely that publicans seldom appeared at the temple because of such great hostility and widespread uh, enmity toward them. But on this occasion, one of them was found at the temple. Now, when the Pharisees and the other religious leaders who were present and they were hearing our Lord telling this parable, uh, they must have been greatly offended at this point. What? How can Jesus mention the righteous Pharisee and the wicked publican in the same breath and place them both in the holy temple at the same time? That's utterly unacceptable. The two must be kept apart as far as possible both literally and figuratively. Well, listen to how the Pharisee prayed in verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So notice a few things about this prayer. First, he stood to pray. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing that, uh, nothing wrong with standing in prayer. The problem is that this Pharisee stood up to pray, not because he had a deep reverence for God, but because he had great confidence in himself. And second, notice that he prayed with himself. Uh, the preposition with can also be translated to. In other words, we could say that he prayed to himself. His prayer was not ultimately directed to the Lord, but rather at himself, and it becomes a means of boasting and of exalting himself among others. He never makes any request of God throughout his prayer. God is only mentioned once at the beginning, and then the rest of the prayer is focused on himself. In fact, he uses the personal pronoun I a total of five times in these two verses. I thank thee I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, and so on. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. You could say that his prayer was man-centered, self-centered prayer rather than a God-centered one. But thirdly, notice how he begins by thanking God, not for what God has done in his life, but for what he himself has done or not done. He is the good an upright and moral man that he is because of his self-effort and self-discipline and self-denial. Verse 11 focuses on what he has not done, while verse 12 on what he has done. As for the first, he takes pride in the fact that he is not like other men, and then he compares himself to a variety of sinners. Uh, he is not an extortioner or swindler. He is not an unjust man and he's not an adulterer or immoral man. And then to wrap up his description of how he stacks up in comparison to others, he says, or even as this publican, this publican was probably standing as far away from him as possible, and yet somehow the poor man got dragged into the Pharisee's prayer. 
Now it's interesting that the Pharisee doesn't compare himself with those who are very pious or those who are outstanding in their reputation. Men like Simeon, who is described in chapter 2 as being just and devout, or even the prophetess Anna, who served God with fastings and prayers night and day in the temple. Instead, he chooses the worst in society from a moral and religious standpoint to compare himself with. And the reason is simple. See, if he compares himself with those who are very pious, those with great reputation for righteousness, he might not look so good in comparison to them, or worse still, he might even appear inferior to them. The way to ensure that he stands out is by comparing himself with the scum of society, swindlers, adulterers, and so on. But then in verse 12, he highlights to everyone who could hear him praying the good things that he has done and he continues to do regularly. He stingers out two practices in particular, fasting and tithing. He says that he fasts twice a week. Now this is by no means a requirement of the Old Testament law. In fact, the law seems to only require fasting on the Day of Atonement, which took place once a year. So we read in Leviticus 16.31, It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. This phrase, afflict your souls, seems to imply fasting, among other things. But that was it. Besides the Day of Atonement, the law did not require the people to observe any regular fast throughout the year. So clearly this Pharisee was going way beyond the law's requirement by fasting more than a hundred times per year. Then second, he ties very zealously and religiously. He gives a tenth of all that he possesses. Our Lord in Matthew 23 gives us an idea of what this looks like when he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Mint, anise and cumin were the little garden crop. The Mosaic law required the people to give a tenth of their general crop, like grain and fruit. But these Pharisees were so careful and scrupulous that they paid tithe even of the smallest garden crop that they had. So what we could say about this Pharisee is that he was a very pious, religiously zealous, morally scrupulous person. Surely God would be pleased with me and welcome me with open arms. He must have thought. Now before we consider the prayer of the publican, I'd like us to just think about this for a moment. The Pharisees were willing to fast a hundred times more than what the law required. But they were only willing to be very careful about giving a tenth of all that they had. Why did they not give more than a tenth? Why not boast about giving 20 or 30 or even 50% of all that they possessed? Wouldn't that make them look really good and generous in the eyes of others? Ah, but they were not willing to do that. They wouldn't give more than 10%. question is why? Well, Luke suggests to us the answer in an earlier passage in chapter 16, verse 14, where we read, And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. The word covetous in the original literally means a lover of money. The Pharisees 
were lovers of money. And so their outward show of piety and religiosity in this area of giving ended with the tithe or 10%. They were not willing to part with more. <clears throat> they were careful to give exactly what the law required, but not a single cent more. Fasting was different. It's okay to fast much more than what is required because fasting is cheap. It doesn't cost you anything. In fact, you can save some money on the meals in the week. So much as they wanted to look good in the eyes of others, they were also careful not to give more money than what was required of them. This is often the problem, isn't it, with mere formalism or with outward show of one's religion. You go only as far, but not more than that. You're willing to go, not willing to go further when it really costs you something. Indeed, self-righteousness is often shallow and hollow. But now we come to the publican and his prayer in verse 13. The publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee was probably standing way out there in the front of the temple court, while the publican was right behind on the outer edges of the court of the Gentiles. He probably stood afar off because he felt his utter unworthiness in approaching the Lord, in drawing near to him. He was conscious of the great distance between the thrice holy God and himself, a great sinner. And so he was not even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven. Such an action was too noble for him. He was not even worthy of that. But next we are told that he smote upon his breast as a sign of contrition and sorrow for sin. Apparently in Judaism, the heart is regarded as the seat of sin. And so this action of beating upon one's breast uh, or chest where the heart is located is an appropriate outward gesture for repentance and sorrow for sin. And so the publican stood afar off. He was not even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven and he repeatedly smote upon his chest. And then he utters those simple but very meaningful, beautiful words. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. As I mentioned in the sermon this morning, the word merciful or have mercy is very interesting. It is not the usual word that is used for mercy. Instead, it actually comes from the word for propitiation. And so we could literally translate his prayer as God, be propitious to me, a sinner. The word propitiate or propitiation means to appease and to turn away a person's wrath. It's one of the terms that is used in the Bible for the atonement. So for example, in 1 John 4.10, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what this publican was essentially asking God to do was to turn away his wrath from him on account of the sacrifice that was made for sin. In the Old Testament, all of the bloody sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, pointed to Christ. And so this publican, whom we have no doubt uh, was a true believer, looked to Christ, the Lamb of God, for forgiveness of sins and acceptance with God. 
Notice that the publican, unlike the Pharisee, does not compare himself to anyone. He is not concerned about looking good or looking better than others. It's very interesting that in the original, the publican literally says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He uses the definite article. He's not just any sinner, but he is the sinner. It's almost as if he's saying, there is no other sinner in this place. It's just me, the sinner standing before the righteous God. He's not interested in comparing himself with anyone else. He has a totally different attitude from the Pharisee. He knows that he is nothing but a wretched sinner and his only concern is that he might be brought into a right relationship with the Lord. That's the only thing that matters to him and the only way that that can happen is through the mercy of God in Christ who is the propitiation for sin. And so we've seen this stark contrast between the two men and their two prayers. But now let's consider the Lord's concluding comments about them. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So the Lord expresses his approval of the publican's attitude in prayer. And observe a few things from what he says. First, when speaking about the publican, he says, this man or this one, in contrast to the Pharisee, whom he refers to as the other, or literally in the Greek, it is that one. And this is very significant because earlier on we noted that the Pharisee was standing in a prominent place in the temple, whereas the publican was standing afar off, probably on the outer edges of the temple court. So just based on their physical location and position, uh, we could refer to the Pharisee as this man standing here and the publican as that man standing over there. Ah, but you see, God sees differently from men. 1 Samuel 16, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him, referring to Eliad, David's oldest brother. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, the Lord looketh on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart, and that is what truly matters. So from the Lord's point of view, the publican is the one who is near to him, while the Pharisee is the one who is afar off, which is totally opposite from man's perspective and perception. But secondly, notice that the Lord says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The parable begins in verse 10 with two men going up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the one a publican. Both went up to the same place to seek the Lord in prayer, but only one comes down justified, whereas the other is not. Just going up to the temple itself does not mean that the person is or will be justified. In fact, the Pharisee assumed that he was perfectly well and fine as he was making his way up to the temple. He was not really going there to seek 
God's forgiveness or pardon or help, for he considered himself to be righteous already. In contrast, the publican went up to the temple looking only to the Lord for mercy and pardon. And at the end of that day, he and not the Pharisee comes down justified. Now the term justified refers to God's pronouncement or God's declaration of a person that he is righteous. God declared the publican to be righteous. His sins have all been blotted out, removed as far as the east is from the west. He is accepted as righteous on the basis of the righteousness of another. He was truly justified. Our Lord's words really remind us of what Paul wrote in Romans 4 verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. By declaring the publican to be justified, Christ shows himself to be the one who justifies the ungodly. Publican must have gone home with great joy, peace in his heart, knowing that he is fully accepted of the Lord. In contrast, the Pharisee goes home empty-handed. Actually, it's worse than that. The Pharisee goes home guilty and condemned because his sins have not been removed. In fact, he had just added to his list of sins the sin of pride, the sin of arrogance and contempt for others. And so in the first part of verse 14, the Lord is teaching us really about the kind of attitude in prayer that one must have if he is to be received and accepted and blessed by the Lord. But then the second part of verse 14, the Lord goes on to give a more general theological principle. He says, For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter 5. God resisteth, resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The Lord, you see, is pleased with, with those who are humble and he honours them, whereas those who are proud, he opposes and he brings them down to the ground. So this evening we have considered the parable of the Pharisee, or if you like, the first century Puritan and the publican. I'd like us to take away two lessons from this passage. First, let us learn that humble people do not compare themselves with others, or if you like, the humble person does not engage in self-comparisons. It's the proud person who is constantly looking around at others and comparing himself with them. If he sees someone who is better than him, he may become very jealous or envious, or else he may even go into depression because he realizes he cannot attain to that high standard. But if he finds someone who is inferior to him, then he is filled with joy and delight. And not only that, but he despises that person, he looks down on him or her. In contrast, the humble person does not compare himself with others. He knows who he is. And as a person, who he is is not determined by how he stands in comparison to others. Rather, it is determined solely by his standing before God, even as a sinner who has been forgiven and made righteous by the righteousness of Christ. 
That is what truly matters to him. J.C. Rao wrote, Happy indeed is he who is not ashamed to sit by the side of the publican. Yes, indeed, the humble person has no problem mixing with the outcasts, the despised, the lowly in society, and so on. He can sit next to the publican, to harlots, and to other despised people without feeling superior to them and proud of his own morality. He knows that everything good in him and good about him comes entirely from the Lord. He is what he is by the grace of God. And apart from God's grace, he is no different, no better than all the other publicans and sinners in this world. In short, this humble person is not self-righteous. He does not think himself to be so far above other sinners that he will never fall into the same kinds of sins that they have. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Tempted to do what? Well, among other things, tempted to be proud, tempted to be self-righteous. One writer wrote, It is hard not to feel at least a little self-righteous when you are correcting someone else's sin. So the more we learn about someone else's depravity, the easier it is to look down on him or her. This temptation, Paul tells us, must be resisted. And the way to resist it is by examining our own hearts. We are as prone to fall into sin as anyone else. But only a humble person, you see, will think in that way. The proud person will hardly examine himself or think that he is as prone to fall into sin as others, including the sin of self-righteousness. Isn't it ironic that the person who condemns a self-righteous person can often find himself guilty of the same sin. And so we all need to examine our, our, our hearts. No one, not even a publican or a harlot, is exempted from the temptation to be self-righteous. But meanwhile, a truly humble person can stand next to those who are seemingly superior to him without feeling jealous or angry or depressed because he knows that he is already accepted by God. He does not need to make himself look good or to earn God's approval or man's approval. Humility is a wonderful thing. It sets us free from this bondage of always trying to look good in the eyes of others, of always being afraid or worried about what others might think of us. Humility sets us free from such bondages and burdens. It is truly a liberating grace. And yet, sadly, humility is also such a rare and an uncommon grace, even among believers. And so, brethren, let us all seek diligently to cultivate humility in our lives by putting away all manner of self-comparisons and by humbly looking to the Lord alone for his mercy and acceptance. And since I mentioned the term Puritan so much, I think it would be appropriate for us to listen to a true Puritan prayer, not uh, the one that we find in this passage, but a true Puritan prayer taken from Arthur Bennett's The Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers and meditation. 
And I quote, No day of my life has passed that has not proven me guilty in thy sight. Prayers have been uttered from a prayerless heart. Praise has often been praiseless sound. My best services are filthy wrecks. But in my Christian walk, I am still in wrecks. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitent, penitential tears are so much impurity. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. Is that remarkable? Whereas some people think that they can wash away their sins with their tears, the Puritans thought that their very tears themselves needed to be washed. Oh, may the Lord grant us such humility and to pray in such humble ways. But this brings us to our second lesson for this evening. Let us take great encouragement that God loves to hear the cries of those who are humble. Yes, we may feel ourselves to be very great sinners, very unworthy to come into God's presence. And yes, we may feel our prayers to be very weak and feeble and even faltering. But let us remember the picture of the publican and take courage. Let us see him standing there at the outer edges of the temple court with his head bowed, his eyes lowered to the ground and hands beating upon his breast and his lips crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And remember the words of our Lord about him. I tell you, this man, this one who is near to me, this man went down to his house justified. Let us take comfort and, and hope and keep on praying. The Lord Jesus, who commended the publican's attitude in prayer, is the same Lord who is even now sitting at the right hand of God, praying and interceding for us who are poor and wretched sinners. Do you see yourself as a poor and wretched sinner? Then take heart that you are in good company, for you have joined the rest of the publicans or publican-like sinners who have been saved only by the grace of God. And you can have the assurance that the Lord delights in hearing your cries as he heard the cries of the publican in our passage. Praise God for his wonderful grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.